tomorrow. Um, many of you probably saw the schedule up there. Tomorrow we'll still be in silence, but we'll be adding um, one more aspect, you could say, of this practice that probably will be at least a little bit more captivating than the message board out there. <laughs> That's a big thing, right? It's amazing, right? <laughs> Always got stuck by the message board. Maybe that one more note to captivate the mind. And that's this, uh, you could say, this form of practice of speaking. Be in silence and Andrea will go over the details of that tomorrow morning. But it will be a way of navigating it that allows you to have a sense of how little or how much you want to engage in that. So it's not like we're forcing something upon you, something that I think will allow for a kind of, uh, allow each system to get a sense of what works best for you. And in light of that, I want to offer you some reflections just on this, this practice of wise speech. And not only for tomorrow, but really for the next phase of our retreat, when you also go out into that unreal world out there and try to navigate it. And I think it's good to, to take some time with it. I know for me, and I... I definitely don't want to assume that all of you are as neurotic as I am, but sometimes, (laughs) even at the beginning of a long retreat, what arises in my mind at the beginning of a long retreat is worry and concern about the end of the retreat and talking to people. (laughs) It's unbelievable. And and I really want to point out that it's, it's such an important aspect of this practice that this practice is not merely about sitting on a cushion or a chair. And yeah, this, this is the, what you're doing here in the silence really transforms the heart and mind. But it's wonderful to place this other skill on top of that, you could say. And it can get neglected. When I reflect back just a, a kind of all my years when I was... Uh, in the Zen tradition, uh, being a Zen monk, I think my sitting really got to the point, there was just so much sitting we did of really sitting through everything and having a stability with that. But when it came to wise speech, oh, (laughs) I was so unskillful around that. I just, it wasn't something that was part of that scene so much. So much of it was around work and sitting. And... Um, yeah, if, if my fellow practitioners from those years are listening to this, my apologies. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's so important. And I'm sure all of you have noticed, right, it's such a tricky arena, communication. Have you noticed our words and our communication, how powerful they are? They can support and heal and awaken, yet at the same time, they can harm and hurt so drastically in such huge ways. And I'm sure all of you here, all of us here have experienced both of those, those, uh, those sides of, 
of this world of communication. Like right now, can you think of a time when the words of someone else have been so extremely helpful to you? Maybe it was a friend, a family member, or a teacher who, who said just the right words at the right time that actually really made a difference. And you might have a sense when you offered something similar, when you offered that conversation to maybe a friend going through a hard time and being there and sharing words and listening allowed for something different in another person's life. And then oppositely, probably all of us can think of a time when we've been so hurt by the words of another, the sting of that. I can even reflect back on being on retreats and my mind just going over and over again, the things that someone had said to me and the pain around that. And not only that, maybe you're like me, the, the regrets that you have about the things that you said to another that were so harmful and hurtful. Our words and our speech have huge impact and it can go either way, the wholesome or unwholesome direction. Reminds me of a, a friend of mine and um, I think it was her second year of, she'd gone to college and her second year of college she had, had received on the same day two letters from her parents, one from her mother and one from her father. And she's pretty certain that they were not aware that they were both writing these letters. And the letter from her father was uh, s filled with so much about how proud he was that she was actually in college and how happy he was about her really taking the step in her life. And it brought so much uh, joy to him. And her the letter from her mother filled with how disappointed she was that she hadn't fully been using her talent and her knowledge in a way that was really excelling as much as she should be in college. She was so interesting, the emotional impact of both of these. One so devastating and, and the other so uplifting. These are just words on a paper, the power of speech. When you think about unskillful speech, how it can create so much difficulties in friendships or partnerships, challenges in communities, and even between countries, the wars and the conflict that arise because of unskillful speech. I think this is why this is so important because what you say and has, uh, how you say it has a tremendous impact in this world. It reverberates out. So how to engage in wise speech? How do we take this on as, as a practice? 
So I'd like to share with you, just in light of that, some, you could say, some guidelines that we can find in these early Buddhist texts from the Buddha. And he gives this description to the bhikkhus, the monastics, you could say the practitioners. He says, speech practitioners possessing five qualities, five factors is speech that is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. What are these five qualities? It is speech that is spoken at the proper time. What is said is true. It is spoken gently. And what is said is beneficial. And it is spoken with a heart filled with loving kindness. Possessing these five qualities, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. So here we have these qualities. I like to boil it down. He gave us five. I scrunch it to four. I always think the, the smaller the list for me, the better. So <laughs> I apologize if you like bigger lists, but I can, we can expand that. So is it true? Is what I'm saying right now, is it true? Is it kind? Is, is, is there a quality of kindness within the heart and mind? Is it timely? Is this the, 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 uh, the, the, the proper time to be saying this? And is it useful? So I use the word useful instead of beneficial. So I'm, I'm kind of squeezing gentle and kind together here. So is it true? Is it kind? Is it spoken at the proper time or timely? And is it useful? And I find this helpful if I have the time, I don't always have the time to reflect if what I'm gonna say fits, fits these qualities. Because in some ways it helps point um, the attention back to what we're doing here so much of the time of noticing the attitude of the mind, the quality of mind that's behind what's going on moment after moment. So I want to go through these uh, with you. So first, is it true? Because, you know, on this path we're engaging in living the truth, living in accordance with the way things are. And to have speech that reflects that, I think is so important. It's a manifestation of what we're doing here. And one of the things I wanna point out about speaking that which is true is that it's not necessarily the same as following kind of societal conventions. That's a whole entirely different thing. I want to give an example of this just to clarify this, this distinction. So one example of this actually happened um, in this area, about an, an hour drive to the northwest in a small town called Colerain, Massachusetts. And there was a couple, maybe some of you are aware, uh, familiar with this couple, um, uh, Randy Keller and Betsy Corner, who actually there was a, a big kerfuffle around this. Um, Randy spent, I think, a, a, 
a bit of time in, in prison for this, refused to pay their taxes because they, they didn't want any of their money going to the U.S. military complex. And what I want to point out about that is how ethical that was in terms of that, that that was, that was a kind of action, and you can probably say the speech around that was, had integrity. They were really honest about what they were doing. I think they even filed their, their tax forms of, this is how much we owe, and this is how much we're going to be giving to organizations, and we want to be clear, we're not going to be giving it to you because of these reasons. It's not about following society. It's about following what has integrity in this sense, what is true. But it's tricky. What, what is truthful? What is true? And I think this, this harkens back to what Andrea was sharing with us last night about about views and attachment to, attachment to views. And she was sharing with us those verses that I found so striking from the, the Atakavaga. And also that, that story about Anattapindika in, in that sutta, the Ditti Sutta, the, the Sutta on Views. And it pointed to something that I think is very important around getting a sense of what is true and how to hold that. And it was around this phrase that Andrea, I think, repeated a few times. It was, it was one of the, the parts of what the uh, wandering ascetics were saying to Anattapindika, namely, when they had said a statement afterwards, they'd say, only this statement, only this is true, and anything otherwise is worthless. That, to me, is when I get a feeling sense of that, that is a mind that's attached to that view, it's like the, the near enemy of speaking what is true. Because within that, what I get a feeling sense of is the birth of a certain kind of self. It's the birth of I am right. And boy, it feels so good. And it can feel so true being right. Have you noticed that? I want to share with you just a small passage from this. It's a great book. It's, it's called On Being Wrong by Catherine Schultz. And she first starts with just this dynamic of how it feels so good to, to be right. And she asks this question, why is it so fun to be right? I mean, as pleasures go, it is, after all, a second order one at best. Unlike many of life's other delights, chocolate, surfing, kissing, it does not enjoy any mainline, mainline access to our biochemistry, to our appetites, our adrenal glands, our limbic systems, our swoony hearts. And yet the thrill of being right is undeniable, universal, and perhaps most oddly, almost entirely undiscriminating. We can't enjoy kissing just anyone, but we can relish being right about almost anything. (laughs) 
Man, isn't that so true? <laughs> it just feels so good. And there's the allure. That's the, you could say the near enemy of this, this aspect. Am I grasping on to, wow, I, I know what's true. So much of this is how we hold it. I had given you in a previous talk this image that the, the Buddha gives in the, in the Dhammapada. It's like kusa grass. If you hold it tightly, it can cut the hands. But if it's held with an open hand, it can be utilized. So in terms of holding views skillfully, especially when it comes to speech, especially around this realm of what is true, I, I come back often to a passage uh, from the Zen master, the Zen master Dogen from an essay of his called the Genjo Koan, where I feel he gives such crucial and helpful advice about how to navigate views, especially around when we're speaking and also the trajectory of this path of awakening. So I want to share it with you. He begins, he says, when dharma, when the dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. Yet when dharma does fill your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So I want to point out something. Hopefully you hear the kind of Zen flavor of this. The opposites, right? We would imagine it's the opposite. We would think that when we're completely filled with the Dharma, when we're filled with understanding the way things are, we would have the sense that this is a sufficient. This is already sufficient. I have it all. But he's saying the opposite. He's saying that when you're completely filled with this understanding of the way things are, there's an understanding that something is missing. And when you're not filled with the Dharma, when you're deluded, delusion is thinking that it's already sufficient, that you got it. So he gives an example of this to clarify it. He says, for example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and it does not look any other way. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been out, out on the ocean where you go past the land and it, it can appear circular? It, it, it has a certain sense to it. But then he says, but the ocean actually is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It could be like a palace or like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as your eye can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. Can you remember that 
when you're speaking about anything. Oh, it really does look circular. I'm certain that it looks circular and that is the true view. No, it's just what my eye can see. Whatever comes out of my mouth is always incomplete. It's just a concept. It can't encompass the world. It will never be sufficient. And that understanding, that concepts, and whatever concept I use, there's always something missing, is a quality of awakening. It's the understanding of limitation. What would it be like to speak from that, from that sense? Oh, something's always missing to what I'm saying. So it's remembering, it's not like we come to some view that's the right answer. We can't. It's always coming from a certain perspective. And I want to point out, and with examples that I'll give further on in this talk, I'll point out, yes, we can come to a view that is more skillful and less harmful. And that's essential. That's what we're here to do, to figure out how to come to views, especially when we're speaking, that are skillful and less harmful. But that doesn't mean I have to have a sense that I got it. I'm right. Because that has a different feeling to it. At least that's what I notice. Because sometimes when I have the feeling I'm right, what comes with it is, I'm so right. (laughs) And everybody else is wrong. I think it would be so embarrassing. Well, maybe it wouldn't be embarrassing with all you to, to just to bring to mind how many probably thousands of times I've had conversations in my head on retreat, where that was the kind of impulse, I'm so right. (laughs) The allure of that. So what would it be like to engage in a conversation in which there is a sense that your view is incomplete? It would demand that I listen. It would demand that I skillfully listen internally. Is there a grasping underneath this views? Is there a grasping around what I'm about to say? It would demand that I skillfully listen externally. Where is this other person coming from? How do they see the ocean? Does it look like a circle or a square to them? I'm so curious about that, especially since I don't have the view. What's their view of the ocean? So onward a little bit. I, I, I want to also point out that there's nothing skillful about just speaking the truth. It's just one facet of this. It needs to be combined with kindness, timeliness. 
and usefulness for it in order to be skillful. I was saying something that is truthful without these other qualities really might be very harmful. So is it kind? Can you speak with a mind imbued with loving kindness? And I, th I think for me, this is a wonderful thing to practice in the easy times. We'll get to the difficult times. But can I uh, remember to express kindness? And the way I do this often is around appreciation. And it can be just around small things. But I love to do it for myself and it's amazing to see the impact. I'm in one of those huge, gigantic hardware stores, something like Home Depot, like where I can't find anything. <laughs> and there's that person who knows what aisle that plumbing part is on. Thank you so much, I so appreciate that. I would have been looking around for a half an hour. Thank you for your kindness. It's such a, a sweet moment to express something through speech. Especially sometimes in jobs like that, that I know, because I've had jobs like that, that can be so thankless. What a gift. And what a fun practice to engage in. And specific things like that, not just platitudes, but specific things. This world and people help us and support us in all kinds of sweet ways every day and to express that. So I think this is a wonderful thing to explore, you know, in these coming days. Where is the opportunity to express kindness? And to savor it, to enjoy it, enjoy it, to make much of it, to feel the pleasure of the blameless quality of that, the integrity of it. And in terms of kindness, the Buddha was very clear about not engaging in speech that is divisive, that divides, which I think is another aspect of this. And he explains, he says, you know, a skillful practitioner, what they have heard here, they do not repeat there. So as to cause dissension there. And what they have heard there, they do not repeat here so as to cause dissension here. Thus they unite those that are divided and those that are united they encourage. Concord gladdens them. They delight and rejoice in concord. And it is concord that they spread by their words. And not even in, in not only in, in engaging in not engaging in divisive speech, but even when others are unkind to us, the Buddha is very clear. He says, we shall abide still compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. It sounds great. But quite tricky, don't you think, when you have to speak out against something or need to have that difficult conversation? How do we carry these kinds of um, encouragements forward? 
not being divisive and having a heart filled with loving kindness or being compassionate for another's welfare. That's what I also want to speak about, not just about the easy times, but when, and when something else is called for. And what I want to point out is the Buddha is very clear that there are times where we need to speak out about things. There's a striking passage that, that I love because I don't hear this passage very much when I hear about wise speech. And it's another list where he's uh, talking about how a practitioner, a monastic, but I, I think we can expand it to all practitioners, have these, these particular qualities, possess these certain qualities. And I want to share with you the first two. The first one is having investigated and, and, and scrutinized a skillful practitioner speaks dispraise of one who deserves dispraise. Having investigated and scrutinized, they speak praise of one who deserves praise. So this isn't just about nice speech and being a nice person. It's about being clear about what's going on around us and knowing what to praise and knowing what not to praise, to actually dispraise, to speak out against. This is part of the path the Buddha is saying. Through investigation, getting clear about that. Striking, don't you think? That this too is part of wise speech. So how do you do this? How do you speak dispraise, yet also be kind, yet also not be divisive? How do these work together? Do they work together? And, and for me, what I bring to mind is I, I uh, bring to mind that I, I need to keep my eye on the greater harmony and to speak out in a way that creates what I call the greater harmony. Remembering harmony, right? It's literally a concord of sounds, different musical elements fitting together. It's not just one tone, it's many tones. You know, many people can sing along with a melody, but more, much more difficult to sing the harmony. So I, I want to point out in this kind of thing, sometimes there needs to be an upheaval before a deeper, deeper harmony can emerge. Not just some simple melody, but a harmony that has multiple tones to it. So having this intention, can there be the intention for a greater harmony rather than divisiveness? And it, again, harkens back to what we're doing here. As I said before, it demands that I listen. It demands that I listen skillfully internally to be sensitive to the mind states that are fueling this challenging speech. It demands I skillfully listen externally. Is, is the way I'm speaking out, is it ending up being skillful for the situation? Because I think sometimes we need to go through chaotic phases, both collectively and individually, 
to reach a deeper harmony. So I hope you're hearing here that kind speech is different than simply wanting to avoid conflict, which sometimes, I don't want to, you know, it's, you can't make huge generalizations, there's always exceptions, but sometimes the kind of people that really like doing long retreats would rather not deal with conflict. <laughs> oh, this might be coming as bad news to you. <laughs> kind speech is different. And it's different than not wanting to make fee- other people feel uncomfortable. There's all kinds of interesting stories of the Buddha making people feel uncomfortable. It's not about that. So what can this look like? So the example that comes to mind, and you, you might know the story of this, this man um, by the name of Daryl Davis. Just so striking about how he engages in speech and what I'd call wise speech. So way back at when he was, he was actually a musician um, in a country band with a, with a bunch of white guys the uh, African-American man. And they would be mostly playing in, in uh, white venues, all white venues. That's all they were playing in, country music. And in one of these venues, one of the man members actually um, introduced him to a member of the KKK. <laughs> yeah. And the trippy thing about it is he became friends with this guy. And not only him, he became friends with a number of uh, these men that were involved in the, the KKK. And not only that, out of their friendship, many of them, I think he said over a hundred of them, left the KKK because of his connection with them, because of the conversations that he would have with them. It's just a remarkable story. And it was really because of how he engaged himself in these conversations. So I want to share with you a little bit of what, um, how he engaged in this. Part of it, he said, um, I wish I don't have this quote, but he said one of the big things is just to listen to them. He said he spent so much time understanding their point of view, which he said isn't, you know, it can be kind of difficult <laughs> in terms of how extreme they were. And not only that, he actually studied a lot about the KKK and their views. He wanted to see how they saw the world. Wow, to them it looks like the ocean's really square. Isn't that interesting? And through that, he said that there is this connection that started to, to happen. He said, the most important thing I learned is that when you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. So if you have an adversary within a poisoning point of view, give that person a platform. Allow them to air that point of view, regardless of how extreme it may be. And believe me, I've heard things so extreme at these rallies. He was going to KKK rallies. (laughs) they'll cut you to the bone. And then he says, you know, 
And then you challenge them once there's that connection. But you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. So he and I, he's talking about Roger Kelly, who was, I think, one of the imperial wizards of the KKK, who actually left because of him. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another over a period of time. And the cement that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. And then it fell apart. And what's so striking, a number of these men in, in positions like uh, Roger Kelly, when they left, they actually gave um, Daryl Davis their, their, um, their robe and hood. So he's a closet full of these because of <laughs> this. And it's, it's really so striking, the, uh, the connections that were, were built. Like there was another man, ex- really extreme views, that he, he actually became friends with. And, um, and Daryl Davis invited him to his wedding. And uh, Daryl Davis's wife is white. And this man was publicly extremely opposed to mixed race marriages. And he was being interviewed on CNN before Dale Davis's wedding. And the CNN um, interview was like, so we hear, you know, how opposed you are to mixed marriages. And here, you, here you're going to um, Daryl Davis's wedding. <laughs> What's up with this? And he said something, oh, but I love Daryl Davis and his wife. They'd like come over for dinner and things like that. Oh, of course I'm going. Daryl Davis said he eventually did change his views on that one thing. But what I want to point out is that, that what a powerful thing that somebody can be holding concepts and the love and connection with another person is so transformative that it makes them go beyond even, even these concepts that their mind is still holding. So this is powerful. So not only is it skillful, it's skillful in the, for the world that we live in of learning this art. If you do get a chance, it really is. There's some interviews of him that you can find online that are just so moving and so striking around this. And he goes into much more detail about some of the nuance of what makes this happen over a very long period of time. But I think there's more elements to this that I want to share with you. That we have these two elements. Is it true? Is it kind? And hearing the nuance of kindness. Yeah, having a heart filled with loving kindness. Doing that out of the welfare for others. Not being divisive. Yet speaking dispraise when dispraise is needed. Speaking praise when praise is needed. Not being afraid of conflict when conflict is needed. And these elements, other elements, again, 
from the middle length discourses. Such speech as the Tathagata, the Buddha knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, but which is unwelcome and disagreeable to others. The Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. So there's a time element in this when we have to say something that might be challenging for others, where we need to have that difficult conversation. So the way I reflect on this is that if I have the opportunity, I want to say so many times I don't have this opportunity, is when can I get a sense of when I'm in the, the, the skillful space, the skillful time to have this conversation? And what I'm looking for, and I want to take kind of more of a physiological point of view, because it's sometimes the way I track it, is the sense of if I'm really caught in a kind of some kind of threat response, so if the mind's flooded by a kind of the sense of fighting or fleeing or freezing, my mind is not in a place where it can think skillfully. It's designed not to think skillfully in those times. It's designed for a different kind of thinking. When, when there's a threat response, I want very simplistic thinking. I want to know if I should run left or right. I want clear, I need clear answers for the mind. It's not a time for nuance because my survival is at hand. And yeah, it's not a mountain lion that you might be speaking to, but it can feel like that. And I need to honor my physiology. So if there's a chance where that's at least a little bit settled, maybe not all the way settled, I want to find that time. What's going to allow for that? Maybe it's taking time to have some connection before that difficult conversation. And the same with the other person. Am I going to catch them when they're in a rush or in a place where there's space? Can I at least be sensitive to this? And again, it comes back to what I keep on repeating. It demands that I listen. It demands that I listen skillfully internally, being sensitive to the physiology and therefore the mind states that are arising. It demands that I skillfully listen externally. Is this going to be the skillful time to talk to this person? And yes, many times the perfect time isn't available but it can be a great reflection. So another story of this, just to bring in these qualities of true, kind, and timely, and, and useful, which I'll get to, but I want to give this example, then get into useful, where I did take some time to really reflect on all four of these before engaging in a particular type of speech. And it happened many years ago. It was, I was, um, I was getting my uh, degree in counseling, my master's degree in counseling, and I was an intern at the time, and I was going around to all the dorms together with the, the nurse of the university where we were sharing to the students our service, uh, services that were available to the students of this, this university. And as we were going around to the, the dorms, we noticed this very interesting pattern that we were kind of curious about is that almost all of the resident assistants, those students who kind of headed the dormitories that were in charge of the dormitories, almost all of them were white. Whereas the, the population of many of the dormitories, most of the dormitories were mostly Latino, and then you could say mostly people of color, Latino, 
African-American, and then there was a contingent of African, a contingent from Nigeria was, was there. So it's just an interesting thing, right? Here, here we see this interesting pattern, and it led us to this question, what's up with this? Maybe we should be asking this question about this, these kinds of patterns, because this is part of, hopefully, what is our mindfulness practice is about, too, is recognizing patterns of harm, patterns of oppression, that we can just kind of bypass in some kind of manner. So I sat down with a nurse and we discussed it. Is it true? Yeah, what we're seeing, this is, this is a view that we have. We're seeing a particular pattern that we can, can, that can talk about, that we have a curiosity about. Is it the only view of what's going on? No, it, the, but the ocean to us looks circular right now. And this is kind of an interesting and important thing to point out to others. We're not saying it's the only view of the ocean, but maybe a significant one. Is it kind? Yeah, it's kind because, because it might be a, a time to speak praise of some, some things and dispraise of other things. It's kind because we have an eye on the greater harmony in some kind of way. Yeah, so this is kind. Is it timely? So this is where this came in. When would be the right time to talk to the woman who was ahead of the dormitories and choosing the resident assistants? So we thought about this and the nurse was like, let me go with you, I know her really well. <laughs> and let's go in the afternoon because she usually has less, you know, in these particular afternoons um, on her desk around this. So let's set up an appointment, make sure there's plenty of time. So we did this. And is it useful? Yeah, it's beneficial. It has a, a greater benefit in terms of both individually and collectively. And so we went, the nurse and I, to share what we were seeing. So I went in there, the nurse kind of made a connection, and then I shared with the, uh, this um, administrator, this is what we were seeing, you know, just want to check in about this. And the administrator leaned across her desk and said, are you calling me a racist? And then she said, which was true, I control the funding for your internship. Just remember that in terms of how much you want to push this. Because this internship just started. So we said some more things about our concerns and then we left. And when I left, I remember reflecting on it and thinking, cool, that was wise speech. It worked out well. Nice. So there we go. Is it true, kind, timely, and useful? That's what determines wise speech, is the quality of mind and the effort we put into it. Not the results. Sometimes we don't get the results that we want. <laughs> just an aside, this is just because it's coming to mind, it's kind of funny because it, I was kind of, this is kind of early on in my kind of racial identity development. And I remember going around and speaking to actually a lot of Latino professors about this dynamic. And I think almost every one of them 
was laughing at the idea of me <laughs> going to this of like, yeah, we, you know, we've been trying this for years, so, so great. And uh, yeah, so really interesting conversations around it. So timely, is it true, is it kind, is it timely, and is it useful? And then useful, one of the things the, the Buddha talks about this around useful speech is, is it idle chatter that you're engaging in? You know, is this really useful or is it just passing the time? Because sometimes what can happen is that we're utilizing um, speech just so we can feel comfortable or just to pass away the time rather than to actually be with another person or to be with ourselves. So again, I think it demands that I listen, that I listen skillfully internally. Noticing, do I have a clear intention behind what I'm saying? Is it motivated by a wholesome quality of heart? Because it's, when it's motivated by a wholesome quality of heart, I'd say it isn't idle chatter. That's what determines it. Even though sometimes it might sound like idle chatter. And skillfully listening externally. Is the way I'm speaking ending up being skillful for the situation I'm in? So what I'm trying to point out here is the subtlety of the use of idle chatter. Sometimes idle chatter is the best way to talk to another person. And this is really important to remember, to get a sense of the context rather than being rigid about how we're holding speech. Again, another story of, interesting story around speech. Many years ago I was, um, officiating a, a wedding in Colorado and uh, I was taking a, a van from the airport up to the place where the wedding was and I was sitting next to this woman and we were just kind of connecting, you know, we knew uh, similar parts of the Southwest, really just beautiful areas of the Southwest and, and kind of talking about the environment and, and I mentioned this environmental organization that I love to support and it was like I just mentioned the devil's name. <laughs> she was, and it, I have to admit, it's an environmental organization that does a lot of litigation, which, you know, a lot of lawsuits, which I appreciate. And <laughs> <laughs> the ocean looks circular to me. And uh, boy, did our uh, conversation take a different turn. She, uh, she was, she was just so livid that I just were, was mentioning this organization in a positive light. And um, things got pretty argumentative about my view and her view. And luckily, I don't know if it was me or her, we decided to stop talking. <laughs> Which is really good. <laughs> We'll get to that too, it's so important. <laughs> and then there was this, after a amount of time, there was this sweet moment. 
and she initiated it. And I really learned something from her around this, where she just began to chit-chat with me about something completely different. And it was this opening for us to connect. And it meant so much to me that actually we left the van actually feeling this connection with one another. And to have that happen in the space of a couple hours, to feel such division and yet such connection when we both decided, not explicitly, but kind of in an in a unspoken way of, can we just set this aside and just take some time to connect? There's a place for idle chatter because sometimes it is, it's true that this is the level we need to, to connect on. It's such a kind thing. It can be so timely and so useful to remember that tool. And then lastly, I do want to take a little bit of time with this because it's so important, is, is, is silence. Because I want to point out that silence is another form of communication and, it, and it's a powerful form of communication. And just like speech, it can have an impact that is both wholesome and unwholesome, depending on what's fueling it. Just in the sides, uh, on the, the side of the skillfulness of silence. I'm sure many of you know that. Boy, when the times when I've been able to catch myself and just to stop and not say anything, I think it's been probably the best things I've had to say was just my silence. <laughs> it's, it's been a, a, a great lifesaver. And I think more often than not, that's the direction I need to go in rather than saying something. It's just, can I just... Brian, just keep your mouth shut, just, just now. <laughs> and, and sometimes I go back to this phrase so much because what's the hook to me is I like to be right. And so I like to say to myself, Brian, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? <laughs> Come on, just keep your mouth shut. Because it's true sometimes. I really don't have anything useful to say. It's really, <laughs> it's incredibly kind to myself and others. It's timely because I have this impulse to say something that shouldn't be said and it can be so useful. And I also want to point out that there's nothing holy about silence. Yeah, you've been able to feel the power of silence here. But silence is also also harmful. And maybe you've seen this, so just in terms of group dynamics and fam family dynamics, it's usually, not usually, but often what is not spoken about can be much more powerful than what is spoken. Like when you think about the things that were not spoken about in your family, There's a power to that in terms of how harmful it is. Sometimes the things that we don't speak about in our communities and in our families and in our friendships, it hurts when sometimes things aren't named or mentioned. And in that sense, when I remain silent, there can be a kind of harm that results from my silence. And in those moments, 
I am being unethical when being silent because I'm hurting others. So important to remember. And often, sometimes we don't realize this only through hurtful situations, sometimes after the fact. I remember this just when I was a Zen monk. One of the big challenges of being a Zen monk is I was practicing with a Zen master that no one, probably even to this day, has, has opened my heart in such a powerful way. He really brought me this connection to the Dharma that I am still so deeply grateful for. And he was a completely, at the same time, messed up, broken person that was hurting people, usually through sexual misconduct. And I remember when I was a monk, the, actually a number of us monks got together and wrote a letter to try to break this veil of silence. And of course, I think it'd probably been going on for many years. There was a big crackdown and clampdown and people were pissed off at us. And the veil in some ways was reinstated. But I noticed that even being there for the short time that I was, I was there for six years and I found out maybe halfway through that my silence was perpetuating the dynamic. And what I needed to do was to speak out about it and to speak out about it continually. This is what was needed. This was the demand upon me. Because that kind of speech is, it's untrue and it's unkind and it's definitely not timely and it's not useful. So you might want to reflect as your speech just in these next couple of days, is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely? Is it useful? And especially when you're out there in the world, is your silence, is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely? Is it useful? And to remember that this is, this is um, what, what fuels this is this demand to listen, to the demand to listen internally like we've been doing here on this retreat. What are the mind states that are there? The demand to listen externally to that other person that you're with so that there can be a flowering of wise speech. So may our wise speech lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's sit just for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.